Hello everyone and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. My name is Avi Kravitz, I'm the Senior Analyst at Rappaport. And joining me in studio this time in, in person for, for the first time in a long time on our podcast is um, Sonia Esther-Sultani, who's our Editor-in-Chief at Rappaport. Welcome, Sonia. Great to see you. Hi, Avi. So nice to be in real life. IRL, like the kids say. <laughs> Um, on trend as always, and um, and Joshua Friedman with uh, uh, is with us, who is our newly appointed news editor. Welcome, Joshua, and great to see you too. Great to be back. Um, so, how are you guys doing? And and what's it like to be back in back in the office? We we're back on uh, on uh, twice a week in in person, so we've adopted this hybrid system. Is uh, how, how's it been for you that transition, Sonia? Well, it's my dream come true because before COVID, I was telling one of our colleagues that I would love to work from home most of the week and just come in twice a week. So I'm sorry, like, hmm. be careful what you wish for. I wanted this, but without the whole COVID in between. So, right. It's been a long journey to get been, to Yes, to get I could you. have just yeah. asked maybe just nicely, but I don't know if we would have been told yes without COVID. So. Yeah, well, it's been, it's been a, it's a nice balance um, having that. Uh, I, I was craving the 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 in-person uh, sort of interaction that we have in the office so it's uh, it's it's nice to have um and uh and for you joshua you you're back on the commute as i am yeah i think i agree with you abby it's uh it's a good compromise uh i have mixed feelings about commuting because you know it's a big big use of time um but i also enjoy the downtime that i get uh, on the commute um and it's much more natural to be working physically with other people rather than uh, via the internet. Um, so overall, I think it's a, a good balance. Right, and, and just to have a place to go to every, every day besides your, your office or study or, yeah. or, or the kitchen, which I seem to do repeatedly in, uh, when, I'm, <laughs> when I'm working from home. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's, quite a, it's quite a dynamic year, I think it's turning out to be, you know, with all the changes and all the trans, you know, we got used to the the situation with COVID. If you can get used to it in in twenty twenty, and even though um, even though it's still uh, it's still sort of raging in certain parts of the world, and you know we we of course uh, um, shout out to all our all our colleagues and friends in India who are still battling with um, with high numbers um, of COVID. But twenty twenty one certainly has brought. Um, a more optimistic feel to to the market, to the industry, and and things are changing very quickly. It seems, um, and and one thing that um, you know, there's been so much already that we've covered in uh, on diamonds.net. But one theme that's come back uh, come back is is that of lab grown diamonds, um, that seem to lay a bit dormant and but sneakily. Uh, did its thing in 2020, but um, it seems to be back back on on the industry agenda. Um, Joshua, what what uh, what are you seeing in terms of lab grown diamonds and the big stories that have come our way this year? So I think there has been increasing demand for for lab grown. Um, I think we can't talk about lab grown at the moment without mentioning what uh, what Pandora did uh, just a few weeks ago. They announced that they were no longer going to use any mined diamonds in their in any of their jewelry and they would only use lab-grown diamonds. Um, this was picked up quite widely by the, the mainstream media. Um, but as all of us know, uh, Pandora really used very few diamonds to start with. So it was a bit of a PR stunt, really. 
And uh, I think the, the news aspect there was the fact that they went negative on mined diamonds. We, we've seen so many um, big brands like De Beers, Signet, Blue Nile, um, going into synthetics and, and manufacturing companies as well, that it's no longer such a taboo. But um, the fact that Pandora is, is adopting synthetics isn't really the story. The fact that they explicitly said that um that it's uh, there's a sustainability story here that's not in mine diamonds that uh, that we can can adopt so sonia what what has been the reaction then for uh, amongst the the natural diamond um uh industry to that pandora it seemed pretty pretty exaggerated even or or we definitely took notice and someone who's i guess uh, as part of rap report somewhat um biased towards natural what what is what is your feeling um, about the pandora move it was interesting because um well first it doesn't come with a job description that you have to be pro natural diamonds if That's you will for <laughs> uh, i think you get caught into the the mystique and the the charm and the, the glamour of natural diamond as you know more about diamonds but um and we also on the side we also cover lab grown diamonds when they're sold by retailers and that's something that we did in April, and we asked actually our, in the magazine, we asked retailers across the US, why do you sell lab-grown diamonds? And most of their replies were because the margins are higher. That's, that's the reply. And, um, and I think that's where, that's where the debate should be really, it should be about the price points. And when Pandora did, they actually talked about sustainability and uh, environmental credentials and kind of saying, natural diamonds are not environmentally friendly. I think that was the message. And it felt a little bit off and a little bit cheeky coming from, as Joshua said, a company that actually doesn't, didn't use natural diamonds to start with. And also you could just say, we're offering nice jewelry. We want to use lab-grown diamonds. And I think that's where the Natural Diamond Council and other associations reacted. They said, don't attack natural diamonds, just promote your thing. And I think that's where the debate maybe should be. It's like educate consumers why do we use lab-grown diamonds? Why do we use natural uh, diamonds? And I think Pandora kind of went straight into the attack where, you know, I think these environmental claims are also a bit dubious because we don't know exactly how much factories produce. Although I think Pandora, Joshua maybe will correct me, they have been, they have this seal of approval. They're really carbon neutral. I think they have this mark. I don't know exactly what it's called right now. Uh, I believe they're on a, on a track to being carbon neutral. Yes. So um, they, they, when they claim something, actually, do consumers know what that means exactly? I'm not sure, but they, they can back their claim. But I think that was, that was the main thing. Don't attack natural diamonds. You know, I think we should be past this debate about this or that. It should really be about a consumer wants a piece of jewelry. Tell them what's inside and decide. Mm. So Right. And, and, sorry. Especially Joshua, at the lower ahead. point. We're talking about the lower point uh, jewelry. We're not talking about Cartier and Boucheron and... You know, maybe we can talk about the big brands, what they're doing later. But I think Pandora really didn't take the, an elegant uh, approach to, to this launch. That's, that's my take. In some ways, they, they were very clever about it because they, I don't think anywhere they explicitly said lab-grown diamonds are better for the environment than natural diamonds, and that's why we're using them. They used, as you pointed out in, that, in the webinar, Avery, uh, that you gave for a week or two ago, they used the language of sustainability, of, they used all these buzzwords, sustainability, affordability, um, 
diamonds are not just forever they're for everyone or something like that mm. um, so the implication it was, then is... it was all in the implication right um, and that's why the natural diamond council also the responsible jury council of which the um which pandora is a member uh, have been rather angry about what's happened. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if it would necessarily um, compromise the membership of like, of the responsible jury council. It's just bad taste. I think that's really the, um, you know, no one's saying that Pandora can't use lab-grown diamonds, and or as as you mentioned, Sonia, that um, that one is favourable over the other. Um, I think what what is um, disingenuous was is that. Um, sustainability issues and environmental issues are very much on the natural diamond industry agenda now and uh, and while we may not be with the proverbial we <laughs> <laughs> while while the industry may not be where where it should be or wants to be it's definitely making um making strides in uh, in, in um in that in the uh, and particularly i think one of the themes that i think is going to be very strong moving forward is is on environmental issues um rather than just those sort of um human human focused social responsibility as uh, social responsibility issues the environment is really coming into play um and uh, sonia you mentioned uh, you mentioned some of the bigger brands and um you know i, I wonder if uh, it w- it would be interesting if one of those higher end brands did go into the lab-grown space and how they would approach it. So I think it's uh, it's kind of happening, but maybe behind the scenes, and we're going to see it in a few, maybe next year, few years. I don't know yet. But um, what I found interesting is Chanel, for example, as um, it's a minority shareholder in a comp- in a French company called Courbet. Courbet is doing lab-grown diamonds, and they do it from Place Vendôme, which is quite revolutionary. Um, the fact that Chanel has invested in a company that produces high-end lab-grown diamonds, I think it's interesting. They seem to be looking at the Chinese market. That's what they're saying. So I think watch this space. And I was a bit taken aback by um, an interview I read in Forbes, um, an interview of the, the CEO of Cartier, Cyril Vigneron, uh, by um, Robert Anas, who's one of our, our contributors, who's a watch expert, and was interviewing Vigneron about the new watches and at some stage, actually, Vigneron talked about environmental consideration that the, the Maison Cartier is take, making at the moment. And they're thinking about, he said, you know, it's a very important debate, natural diamonds or lab-grown diamonds. He doesn't rule it out. And they say, actually, they, they could consider it because the design is kind of over the, the debate about diamonds. You know, if you're Cartier, when you go to Cartier, you buy the design of Cartier. So I think it's interesting. Um, I have my, you know, my, my, my thoughts about it, not as Rappapol, just as a consumer. Um, well, they, they, I, they can say anything about the design. The, uh, the, the price point is lower and that's not going to translate to the, to the consumer. It's going to improve the margins of Cartier. Exactly, the the exactly. Yeah. But that's not what he's saying, obviously. In the interview, he's talking about... Um, eco-friendliness, uh, environmental credentials. He's even actually saying that lab-grown diamonds are maybe good for the environment. So I think, you know, we have Pandora on one hand and we have the Cartier CEO also talking about this environmental issue. So I think that's something we, we need to look at uh, moving forward. And, uh, and I think we always go back to some point, education. You know, what, what, how do we translate and express this information to the end consumer? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you think about the how... how 
the industry's attitudes towards um, lab-grown has changed in, in a very short space of time. Um, I think the conversation is going to be very different five years from now. And, and you know, I think it will be more accepted even from those high-end brands. Um, and it can start in the watch market because I saw that Citizen had, um, it's a Japanese brand, they had a lab-grown, a high-end lab-grown um, set watch in a latest collection. And Courbet, I'm going back to this company, this French company, they said they received a few inquiries from high-end um, watch brands as well. So I say, let's watch this space. I think, you know, if Chanel is invested in it and Cartier starts making some mentions in places like Forbes, yeah, I think that's a, definitely... It's a, it's a little tease and yes. to get us used to the idea. <laughs> um, so my, my advice to anyone is to buy a lot of jewelry now. <laughs> that's been designed by these big houses. <laughs> if you if you into if you into investment, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's always a good idea to to buy those high end pieces. I think, um, but the the sustainability and social um, and and uh, responsible sourcing story is really, um, I think, what's what seems to be driving that discussion, and also within the natural diamond space on its own. And we've seen um, t uh, Tiffany is, has um, really uh, taken this on board and I think playing somewhat of a leadership role. Um, they just uh, released a campaign of, um, of videos um, on YouTube, uh, writes Joshua, that, um, that, that's showcasing that journey. Yeah, they were very well put together. Some short videos where they uh, interviewed uh, the... Uh, well, two, two, two of them were, were employees, were workers of, of Tiffany, um, and one was a consumer, and, and what, what diamonds meant for them. And, and I think the one that struck me most was a, a, a manufacturer, so someone who worked in their manufacturing unit in, uh, in Cambodia, and it shows a journey from what they presented as essentially poverty in rural Cambodia to being able to make a living for her and her family and the people you know, and, and, and her parents um, by working in, um, in Phnom Penh as a, as a, uh, you know, as, as a manufacturer. Um, and uh, yeah, they were, they were cleverly done, nice and short. And uh, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, Tiffany have already, have already, have always been good at this sort of thing. Right, but but it's definitely. I mean, we saw from uh, I think even pre pre pandemic that they they were they made that pledge to have all their diamonds um, uh, mm. with the with a traceable a a element to them, and um, and so that's a that's definitely the mm -hmm. um, the mm -hmm. well. It se it seems that more and more companies, certainly on the retail side, but also I think on the mining side. Are making these pledges to be to achieve certain sustainable sustainability goals by a certain date, um, and uh, and they're being held to it. Pandora being one of them, and uh, I thought it was quite interesting that they got a loan um, that was that was tied to that um, their sustainability goals. That um, so, so it's definitely something we're seeing more more of. Um, I, I, I've been encouraged to see Tiffany in, in the news more because when um, LVMH uh, took them over, we, we kind of thought, ah, oh, there was this shift from the uh, marketing savvy American ownership 
to um, the more sort of subtle and uh, maybe secretive French ownership, but they've been out there and, and doing some creative things. Um, uh, right, yeah. sure. I mean, obviously, we're still not getting, we, we won't be getting their, uh, their sales data, which is unfortunate, but... Uh, that's they, the they secretive have done... part. Of <laughs> <laughs> that's um, the European yeah. secret. Um, but uh, other than maybe a very vague reference in the LVMH, uh, LVMH uh, uh, results. But um, the one, one thing I wanted to highlight, which I guess is a it's an unintended pun, is their yellow um, the yellow box they put out for April Fool's Day. We're already June, so it's funny to be talking about April, but. Um, they launched uh, a, uh, a a a yellow yellow branding to replace the famous uh, Tiffany blue box, and it got a lot of um, this is obviously an April Fool. It got a lot of traction on social media, and now they've now set up a um, a, a pop up store that that follows this theme. And we we featured it in uh, this 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 uh, this yellow box in our in the in our in the report magazine last month. Um, and I think it does show that they're still doing um, inventive things like like they were before the takeover. Mm. And, I mean, it also feeds into their... They have somewhat of a focus on yellow diamonds. They, they, have, mm. uh, they have certain collections that are... There's, you know, the, the, the Tiffany yellows. Um, and so it feeds into that. that uh, that's what the pop-ups are all about, right? And I think also it takes a lot of confidence to, to play with your brand color, and uh, very few companies can do it, I think, as well as Tiffany. Right. I, know, I know, I view you're a fan, and, I, you're, I, and you're very excited about <laughs> that. They're still well, fun and cool, and, and uh, uh, they haven't gone too uh, French. <laughs> deserve. <laughs> well, and the, the other thing is that April, April Fool's um, jokes very rarely come off. <laughs> you know? And this seems to be one where they, they, were, they did it well. You know, and they and and they obviously had a fur, the the further the pop-ups in mind and 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 the yellow collections in mind when they when they did this. So I thought it was it was quite savvy of them. I think that was brilliant, and you could see on social media a lot of people forgot it was April first on that day, and they got really upset because they loved the Tiffany blue or the you know or the, the the reactions were very emotional, and you can see how iconic the the color is and how to, you know when Tiffany does something, the the world notices. So. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's it's such an iconic. Um, never mind brand. The the blue box is so iconic that it would really take. Um, they, I think people would really have something to say at LVMH if they really changed that. <laughs> and that would be another advice: keep your Tiffany boxes from today. <laughs> the past, you never know. Or buy the yellow one. <laughs> that might a collector's to, item. Yeah. Um, so just to, to change topic um, somewhat, um, obviously, and we mentioned at the beginning of the, the show that, uh, that it, the, w- within the trade, India um, has, has been really the focal point on, uh, firstly, there's the COVID story, but the, the effect that, that the rise in COVID has had on, on the industry, and we, we've dealt with it in our magazine on diamonds.net, um, you know, expressing concern that there might be a, a supply um, volatility and that how that would affect um, the markets. And um, Joshua, are you working on a um, on a follow up story to that at the moment? And maybe you want to give us a, a little update on what's happening in terms of the trade and and how it's responding to that situation in India. 
Sure. I mean, India's had probably the one of the worst COVID outbreaks, COVID outbreaks anywhere anywhere in the world. Uh, so in the last couple of months, it's um, uh, India's India's been on been in headlines around the world. Um, and there's, there's, as you'd expect, there's there's been a lockdown there. But actually, the Indian industry was allowed, the Indian diamond industry was allowed to continue, um, because not not because diamonds are considered essential items, but because the diamond industry in India is really a, an essential industry. Um, and unlike the the lockdown and the the outbreak a year earlier, this came at a time where there was strong demand from the US and China. Uh, so it was actually it was essential that the that um, the manufacturing was allowed to continue, the exports were allowed to continue, um, and because of that, the Indians are actually very positive. Um, there's, uh, they are, you know, I said there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of polished demand. Uh, manufacturing is almost at full levels. It's not at completely full levels because there's a lot of absenteeism, um, and there are some restrictions on the number of people you're allowed to have working. Um, but as you mentioned, Avi, the, the biggest issue now is, is the supply. Um, and the people I've spoken to are saying, yeah, demand's great, um, but it's just very, very difficult sourcing rough, and it's very difficult. Uh, it's, it, there's, there's, there are shortages in a lot of polished categories. Um, and this has actually been made, made worse by something we haven't seen for several years, which is a, a backlog at the GIA. So the GIA um, are taking roughly twice as long as they used to, as, as normal, to... Uh, to return goods after grading, they did set up a, um, a sort of a, a, a fast track for about ten percent of, um, of, of of the highest value goods um, that you can that you can turn around faster. But essentially, it's it's, it's really slowing down the the time it takes to to get a, a diamond out into the market, um, and this is adding to the concerns. So, in short, we have a, a situation of of very strong demand and not not enough supply to fill that demand. And uh, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to um, to see how that develops in in the coming months and even in the you know as early as next week or when this podcast gets published, it'll probably be be next week. Um, during the the De Beers site is coming up um, from the seventh of June. Um, and so what are what are expectations for the site? So, I think we have to talk about rough prices because um. Rough prices have gone up and up since the beginning, since the beginning of the year, um, both at De Beers and Al Rosa, um, and even more at the at the tenders. Um, so the uh, both De Beers and Al Rosa have have struggled to produce uh, to demand. So there's a there's a lack of for various reasons. There's a lack of of supply from those companies, um, lack of production, um, and uh, manufacturers are having to go to tenders to make up their shortfalls. The tender prices are going up a lot. And I was speaking to someone yesterday who said that it's it's very, very difficult to make any profit on, on rough from tenders. The prices are so high. Uh, so there are some, some people are predicting that there will be a, another increase in, in De Beers prices at the site, which will be, by the time you hear this, that will be this week. Um... That's not obviously not confirmed yet. I think people are saying that their the beers are, are watching what happens to the, at the tenders that are happening this week, so the first week of June, and um, before deciding what to do about prices at their site, which is in the second week of June. Hmm. It's a, it, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's quite amazing um, 
to think because this time last year, who would have thought that we would have got to where we are today in terms of the 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 optimistic i think forecast for the for the for the market um and uh on the other hand it's um i i don't know it's very difficult to to assess how supply is is evolving because we're still seeing fairly high rough sales um i think a lot of it this year a lot of the rough that's come into the market has been inventory left over from last year um, and uh, but we're we're talking about shortages at the same time. It's it's um, very confusing. But um, but I think overall um, uh, fairly healthy. Um, except we need to watch those those um, margins on manufacturing if they can't profit from the rough. Right, right, and also um, the when when the GIA backlog as you've we've. we've both written about and spoken about before that the GIA, um, at some point, those those goods that are going through their system will be released onto the market, um, and there are concerns that uh, that might um, give a bit of a have a bit of a, ne- a negative impact on 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 the market, and maybe not create a major oversupply, but but slow down the recovery a little. Mm. Um, look, as I think, as long as as long as the demand curve is is rising, that's we've got to take our, our cues from that and and that's that's what's encouraging mm. which actually brings up the other issue is whether a lot of the spike in demand at the moment is because no one's traveling and give it another six months people might be traveling again mm. going out again going to whatever experiences people go to um and maybe they'll have less money available to spend on jewelry right right well time will tell well uh, as the saying goes <laughs> um the the, the uh, you know when we think back to a year ago when when everything was locked down one of the one of the aspects of the industry that was affected were the auctions um and now they seem to be back um so sonia uh what's what is interesting in the in the auction circuit at the moment are we seeing those big pieces come back to to markets or or not we do we do actually even during um even during covid i think the two big auction houses sotheby's and christie's um reacted quite well they had online sales of big diamonds they they had the big signed pieces the cartier deco so there were there were things happening. The the auction houses didn't go dormant for uh, for the year. On the contrary, as Sotheby's worked on its retail platform, Christie's you know also is looking into it. So Sotheby's has opened um, an emporium, a retail space in New York. So they've been thinking of new ways of uh, of selling jewelry and high end jewelry and uh, d- diverse va- various luxury products that they sell. But I think we've seen a few really nice uh, pieces in the past weeks. We've seen um, the spectacle, um, we, which is a big diamond. We're talking about a $14 million diamond. It was um, Christie's Geneva. We've seen um, prov- a high provenance or interesting provenance also at, um, at Sotheby's. There was a, a, a whole set of jewelry that belonged to the adoptive daughter of Napoleon. The Emperor of France, and uh, one of the pieces actually I saw in um, um, Instagram Live, one of the sapphire rings. A lot of people would say the sapphire wasn't the most exquisite quality or the deepest blue, 
but it had this historic provenance. So the collection did very well, not based on the, maybe the quality of the pieces, but you know, if you want only two degrees related to Napoleon, I think that was the, that was the opportunity. And I think there were a lot of, there are a lot of other pieces, uh, big, big diamonds, Joshua, that we saw are coming up again in, um, in, a, in actually this year, they have two magnificent jewels cells in spring. So we had one in April and we have one in New York and we have one again in June, actually the week this podcast will be released. Mm -hmm. So I think one, one that I'm looking out for is this, um, uh, that there was a, a, a yellow diamond that was the largest, I think Canada's largest rough diamond, maybe in North America. La, la, they said uh, North America. Uh, yeah. I guess there's no money exactly. in America so, or Me <laughs> Mexico. Um, so yeah, Canada's largest, uh, largest rough diamond, which was a, which was um, yellow diamond, which is um, that's going uh, going under the hammer at uh, Christie's in New York, um, as as polished, obviously. And it's always interesting to I always enjoy it when we see uh, big polished stones um, going on the market when we when we're I guess old enough to remember when the rough <laughs> when, the, when the rough came out of the ground. Um, but uh, yeah, you've you're you're maturing in the in the industry. Um, uh, but um, are, are we seeing the same volume of these special sort of pieces coming to auction as we as we used to? So dealers are, are saying not. Um, this uh, the the volume of pieces is not as high as it used to be. Um, so the auctions are smaller, but there's also opportunities to make um, better deals because prices you know don't reach the same high prices that they might be uh, they might have reached pre-COVID. So even the the Sakura diamond, which is a pink, pink diamond that sold for, uh, try to remember, um, it sold for over 29 million at uh, Christie's. And we're talking about, so 29 million for a diamond of 15.81 carat. So um, we're still talking for 1.9 million per carat. But um, a lot of dealers would say if it was pre-COVID, this, uh, this stone, which is magnificent and still a world uh, auction record, could have reached even more. So there's definitely that. There's also a lot of dealers saying if you want to buy um, really big, nice signed pieces, the Harry Winston, the, the big diamond Rivieres, it's actually the right time to do it because the demand is not so high um, from consumers. You know, a lot of them. I heard someone on a podcast say recently, nobody wants to, to wear a big diamond riviere with your tracksuits when you're still not going out to big parties. So, <laughs> but these big parties will come back and the tracksuit will get back to the, into the, <laughs> the closet. So, so it's actually the prices, it seems like it's a good time to be a buyer, but that's why maybe sellers don't want to really put the big pieces on the, on the market. Becoming more difficult to to source these goods for the for the auction houses, but they're still really extraordinary pieces. There was a, a tiara from the House of Savoy. Um, I don't know exactly the whole genealogy of the family here, but they sold the Sotheby's, and uh, they were very clever. They did um, AI filter on Instagram, so you could actually try the the tiara. Got a lot of I don't know how many thousands of people, twenty two something something like that. 22,000 people, right. including yeah. yours, <laughs> yours truly. Um, and you know. Can you still do it? No, yeah. you can't. Uh. But you were in this lovely little um, Italian house with the decor and everything. It was done absolutely superbly. And it was fun. And, you know, out of the 22,000, obviously one person 
uh, maybe didn't even try the terror, <laughs> but um, that created a lot of excitement. So I think the auction houses have moved to these more interactive, fun ways to, to promote the sales. And I think that's a result of COVID, which is exciting. So it would be nice to see how they integrate all this when you know, they have uh, more volume in, in the auction and also they want to, uh, to promote the big, big pieces. So it's a nice idea, and it makes the it makes it more accessible to people. The the auction houses, houses. We were talking this morning um, with that. Uh, you know, it must be so. We we've never been to an auction. Um, we're not based in any of the um, the. We're not based in Geneva or New York or um or, or Hong Kong where the big auctions take place, but um. There is a perception that they are not as accessible to the everyday person and, uh, and, and that you have to reach a certain level of wealth, which you do to buy the pieces. But, um, but uh, the auction houses themselves, I think, uh, need to have that conversation with, the, with your Instagram user, with the, the, the man on the street too. And they do a fabulous job. All the... Um all the auctioneers have their private account on Instagram. They do, they do preview, they do interviews, they do IG lives. Um, and also something that, you know, we, maybe some people from the trade know, but other people listening to this podcast, you can actually go and see previews if you're in Geneva, New York, or Hong Kong, or in London, you know, or, you know, the, the auctions actually circulate in Paris as well, in the, in the big houses. And you just need to bring your, your passport and you can, you know, you don't need to be someone from the trade. You can actually go and, learn about the jewelry and you only have some of the extra extra um high pieces who are in a separate room and you would have to have a special um you know you have to sign something or maybe but you'll still be allowed to see it so the auction houses are not this closed world i think that um that you know some people can see from the outside you can actually go and learn so much by going and see the the previews of the auction and also there's not just uh, Sotheby's and christie's you know, we, that's the ones we cover on a regular basis, but you have um, medium-sized auction houses that also do really interesting sales. We cover them, like Skinner had really interesting things, Heritage Auctions. So there are other houses where things are happening, and I think they tell you a lot about the trends of the market. So Marquis Diamonds are in demand, for example, at the moment. So we, you know, and I think this, uh, this is a great place, if you're new in the industry, to go and learn about um, signed pieces, diamonds, prices, it's a uh, it's a it's a fantastic opportunity and it's open doors. Um, I, I didn't realize that it was open to the public actually. Um, that's uh, so it's great to know. It's it's, it's know. I think it's fantastic and it's really you know and the people there they they welcome everyone because they never know who's the buyer. Obviously they know they have a few people that they see at every single preview. They know who's who. They know who's the buyer for graph. They know you know obviously. But um, but I think someone really who's starting in this industry who loves diamonds who wants to see beautiful pieces. Just, just go and uh, try to see the previews as much as possible. So, um, Sotheby's and Christie's watch out after this podcast. Twenty-two thousand people will be trying <laughs> on your, t- your jewelry in person and not just on we Instagram. We have even more listeners than that. So, <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, and and we uh, we we cover the the auctions um, pretty extensively. We have a special section on in the, in the magazine, right? That just uh, and we just went to present pre- to to press. Absolutely. On our June Man magazine. Absolutely. In a June magazine that um, should be out just this week, we have uh, reports from, uh, from the auction houses, what's happening in, um, in different, in the, we have the magnificent, we always cover the magnificent jewels uh, sale. 
And actually, Avi, the, the cover story this month is about banking in industry, which I think is a very important subject. And uh, you were kind enough to give us your insights in that cover story. Can you tell us a bit more what, what you covered for, for the people who are listening who might not be have read the magazine yet? Sure. Um, I don't know if kind is the word. <laughs> I was commissioned. <laughs> you kindly accepted the commission. I did. Um, and we, we had um, dealt with the subject in our research report in, in April. And, uh, and, and so we continued the, the discussion because the industry is in a very different um, position today in terms of its relationship with the banks um, than it was um, pre-COVID. Um, and it's not just as a result of COVID, um, which uh, with, with all the lockdowns and, and as people shifted to trading online, selling, selling online, while um, manufacturing stopped, the industry actually surprisingly came out with, um, in, in a decent liquidity position. And so um, demand for bank financing um, dropped. Um, but that so that was that was um, as a result of of the COVID correction, um, if you want to call it that. Um, but the the trend had been had been moving in that direction pre-COVID and over the last ten years. I think since you know from the two thousand and eight crisis, which was a banking crisis, um, the industry has been has had a I would say a tumultuous relationship with the with the with the banks, and the banks have um, have either pulled out of the industry or reduced their fi their their financing of the of the diamond market, and really try to steer the the industry to self finance more of its rough purchases, and be more cautious in its rough purchases. In as a result, and um, and the the. The, the banks always sort of stressed, uh, and, and others, I think De Beers also played a, a big role in this, that um, they always stressed that you, you, the, the banks look at profitability and reputation as, uh, as, a, as an equation, so to speak, to, to assess a company's bankability. And so the, the, the message was that over the last 10, 12 years that the industry needs to improve both of those. And I think you know to to our point that we we were talking about earlier about you know the 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 improvements that the industry's made in in talking about sustainability and implementing responsible sourcing to its um to its um, uh, business um, operations that uh, it's it has made those improvements and and so that's improved the the reputation of the, the industry and also the fact that there were very few bankruptcies um during this very challenging year that we just went through um in enhanced the the industry's um relationship with the with the bank so so that's what we covered that's that was the focus of my um the the, the portion of the of the cover story that i um covered was really looking at that improvement and uh, and and now seeing if we can continue that uh, you know as as Joshua alluded to, the, there's this dynamic rough market that some um, profitability is being squeezed, and and so we'll see if that aspect of uh, of, of um, the bank's eye on the industry will will continue. And then one of our contributors, Lara Ewan, um, looked at it from the retail point of view and and how um, 
you know, the, the government stimulus to help the retailers through, through COVID. So there's a lot to read and there's a lot to unpack. It's, a, it's an evolving story. And, uh, and I think the conversation will, it'll continue to, to be um, uh, sent, you know, front and center of the industry conversation, but certainly that tense relationship that the lenders and the diamond tears have had has thawed, I think. Which is great news. And also for, uh, for listeners, Avi's and Lara's pieces will be available on diamonds.net. So check it out if you're not a subscriber to the magazine. <laughs> uh, that will be open to all and it's really insightful and I think a must read for anyone in this trade. Thank you, Sonia. And uh, after that uh, shameless plug, <laughs> we'll, uh, I think um, uh, it's, it's good to be back and, uh, and back on the podcast. Uh, it's been a while since we, we've done our last podcast, but we certainly hope to get the momentum going again. Thank you, Joshua, for joining us. Thank you, Avi. And uh, Sonia, pleasure as always. I'm always happy to go for shameless plugs for our products <laughs> that we're very proud of. <laughs> and uh, looking forward to seeing everyone soon. And Have thanks, Avi, for, for hosting us. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone. Bye.